0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime.
2: 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue he had three ships and left from Spain he sailed through sunshine wind and rain he sailed by night he sailed by day he used the stars to find his way a compass also helped him know how to find the way to go 90 sailors were on board some men worked while others snored day after day they looked for land they dreamed of trees and rocks and sand October 12 their dream came true you never saw a happier crew. Indians, Indians, Columbus cried. His heart was filled with joyful pride. But India, the land was not. It was the Bahamas, and it was hot. (laughs) Columbus sailed on to find some gold to bring back home, as he'd been told. He made the trip again and again, trading gold to bring to Spain. The first American? No, not quite. But Columbus was brave, and he was bright so dominic we on the rest of history big fans of william mcgonigal yes but he is rivaled by gene Mazzolo, who is apparently a best-selling u.s kids author from the 1970s onwards your notes tell me
0: well lots of our american listeners will be very familiar with that uh, okay that gr- wonderful work of poetry tom <laughs> um, <laughs> the bardic tradition at its best
2: so um a great poem both for its command of Rhyme and meter and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> but but also for its historical accuracy. Well, so as we've been describing, um, Columbus wasn't
0: necessarily trading, was he, when he got hold of gold? Yeah, I think maybe. Well, some a lot of academics now would probably use the word looting, wouldn't they? Uh, yes, possibly, or stealing, and also that poem, which lots of our American listeners will have heard when they were at elementary school. There's no mention there of the fact that he was also taking back people. Um, no. From the very beginning, he was taking back people against their will. So it's such an interesting debate, and we'll come to it in the second half. The sort of Columbus hero or villain, I mean, whether history has heroes or villains is another issue, which we'll also discuss. But it's clearly Columbus's legacy is a complicated one. And, And even at the time, I mean, we've already discussed this in previous episodes in this series, even at the time people were arguing. About Columbus. He was hated by a lot of the people who sailed with him, uh, who fell out with him. There was the friar we talked about in the last episode who basically went back to Spain and informed on him to the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, and said, you know, Columbus is a terrible man. He's behaving very badly. So, arguments about Columbus are not, I mean, as you said last time, they're not 21st century arguments, they're 16th century arguments that we're still having basically but we left last time on a bit of a so columbus had come back from voyage number 2 and was sort of hanging around spain desperate to go back for a third voyage even though he's lost his monopoly so other people are going over now and the um the catholic monarchs do eventually decide to let him go but the plan is now that he will go beyond the caribbean he will see what else well, is Well specifically is he's going south isn't he because yes. he's traveled to
2: the gold coast on africa and it's an assumption of geographers of the time that if there's gold at, you know, on one latitude, then there's going to be on at one side of the Atlantic, then it'll be, there'll be gold on the other side as well. Yeah. That doesn't strike me as unimpeachable geography. I'm not a great <laughs> geographer, but... So Columbus's relationship to geographical theory in this is interesting. So he heads southwards and basically yeah. he's heading for, for the continent of South America and he almost gets there and then his supplies are running out. And so he veers off north. And he sees ahead of him an island with three mountains.
0: And so he calls it, uh, after the Trinity, Trinidad. So Trinidad. Yes, he does indeed. He's actually, what you missed out on was before he got to Trinidad, so this is 1498, he stopped in what's called the doldrums. So the doldrums is this spot yeah. where basically there's no wind. So you're and it's incredibly and wh- and hot. And wine turns to vinegar, doesn't it? Yeah, and you're incre- it's incredibly hot and you're just become there. And actually I know you're a big fan, you're starting to get into the novels of Patrick O'Brien. And there's a very, very memorable sequence in those stories which are about the age of the Napoleonic Wars. And a a sea captain and his friend, Aubrey and Maturin, in the Napoleonic Wars, is a very memorable passage when they are stuck in the doldrums and it's incredibly hot. They have no water and they can't move. And You're waiting desperately for a breath of wind. And this is exactly what happens to Columbus. And this is why he has to go north, because they're, they're running out of supplies. Exactly. So he goes to Trinidad. But then he does make the crossing. Across the Caribbean, it's a very perilous, difficult crossing to to go across the Caribbean. He's a brilliant
2: mariner, isn't he? I mean, this is the thing. So there is madness, but there is also method. Yes. So his ability to, there's almost a kind of supernatural quality to his ability to find ways across seas that no European has been
0: before, and he keeps doing it. But extraordinary courage. We talked about that in episode two, about Columbus's, I mean, whatever you think of him, bad man, good man, whatever, he is a man of tremendous physical and mental courage to go across seas, not knowing what is there in the most horrendous conditions often. And he's heading for Venezuela. So he is going to somewhere where no European has ever been again. And he hears this great, what he describes as a deafening roar, like the noise of an enormous wave crashing against rocks and currents going from East to West with all the mighty fury of the Guadalquivir in full flood. The Guadalquivir is the, the river Seville. Yeah. Um, And this is the estuary of the river Orinoco and it was sort of gigantic estuary, bigger than anything any European will ever have seen. And, columbus writes later that he says i can still feel the fear spreading through my veins that i felt with the thought that we're in danger of capsizing faced with this kind of torrent of water and it's funny there's a funny moment he they anchor near the estuary and um, they raise a cross on the land and it says the admiral asked the pilots where they thought they were and some said they thought they were in the sea of spain others in the sea of scotland Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, it's a bit hotter than Scotland. Yeah. Yes. Well, but but Columbus himself—I mean—he's torn
2: in all kinds of ways as to where he might be because he's still very much clinging to the idea that he's he's reached Asia. He's not yeah. abandoning that hope, but he is also, perhaps, in the nether reaches of his mind, starting to contemplate the possibility that you know, as he puts it himself, uh, we, that he is navigating along a very large continent which has hitherto remained unknown. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, a kind of shadow over his thoughts. And then there is a wilder, more apocalyptic, um kind of religiously infused perspective that he, is also part of his thinking all the time. And he's starting to think, well, maybe this is Eden. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I think nothing better exemplifies the genius and the weirdness of Columbus than the fact that he, as he's been sailing, he's noticed things about the stars and because of his observation of the stars and the fact that they are not behaving as they should do, were the globe to be perfectly spherical, a perfect sphere. He comes to think, you know, is he sailing uphill? Yeah. Um, and he starts to construct this image of the globe as being in the shape of a pear.
0: Yes. Or
2: <laughs> even better. And this is very much an idea that you could see he's been at sea a very long time. Um, surrounded entirely by men it is as if somebody had a very round ball and somewhere on its surface it was as if a woman's breast had been placed there so that the point at which we might imagine the nipple would be is the most prominent part and the nearest to the heavens which he, so is, he's casting yeah. the nipple as eden but in fact you know he's right um The world isn't a perfect sphere. Yeah. So he's he's onto something. On the other hand, it's not the world is not shaped quite as he is describing it. No, that's fair to say. On the other hand, the world is not a breast shaped like a breast. So (laughs) so there's a lot going on there. Obviously. Yeah,
0: he has been at sea too long. I think it's fair to say. But wouldn't you say? I mean, that's kind of paradigmatically Christopher Columbus' behaviour. It's it's the combination of a slightly fevered mind. He's been, he has been at sea too long. Um, his paranoia, his anxiety about the fact that his theory isn't matching the facts. I mean, that's been a, a feature right from that very first voyage in 1492, but also the intense religiosity. That's been a feature of Columbus's life from the very beginning. He is incredibly pious. I think he has started to really believe that he has been chosen by destiny. So we were in, in episode one we, we were talking about when he was setting out, he thought of himself as somebody we, we had that sort of line about him being the teenager in the bed their bedroom reading internet forums and coming up with theories and, and whatnot. But by now, 1498 or so, that has become obsessive, unhealthily obsessive, to the extent that he thinks everybody else is wrong. That he has this unique, divinely ordained destiny, um, and he starts to see everything through that prism. And I, I, he, he, don't you think, he cuts a slightly melancholy, isolated figure from this yeah, point
2: onwards, definitely. Um, and also, his physical decline, isn't there, because his eyes are starting to hurt. Yes, him.
0: so he's sort of so that that confusion, that fog that he is in, he doesn't know what Venezuela is, he doesn't know what the Orinoco is, he thinks he might be in paradise or Eden, or whatever, or China, stuff, or China, as you say, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's mirrored by the fact that he actually can't see, because yeah. he has this eye condition that he seems to have come down with in Cuba, and it's sort of getting worse and worse, partly because of the eye condition. I mean, he could have gone on into Venezuela. Actually, if he had gone on, I wonder if he'd probably have died, because the story of conquistadors who go trudging through the jungles of Venezuela, Yeah. I mean, those stories normally end extremely badly with them Eating each other, being eaten, <laughs> yes. dying of malaria. Very Werner Herzog. Very Werner Herzog, exactly. Yeah. But actually, because of his eyes and because he's feeling so ropey, he decides to go back to um, Hispaniola, which he does. He goes back to Hispaniola, and he, and he, as is the tradition, he arrives to find that all the men who had left <laughs> yeah. there previously have either died or fallen out massively with each other. That his brother Bartolomeo. Um, has fallen out with this guy called Francisco Roldan. Roldan is has turned completely against the sort of Columbus regime. There's all sorts of very complicated and slightly sort of impenetrable arguments about land ownership, treatment of the locals. They come up with a new system in the wake of this, which is actually anticipates a lot of what the Spanish are going to do, not just in the Caribbean, but also in Mexico, which is called the encomienda. And, and the way that works is you are given a land grant and then you're given a chieftain, basically, who's assigned to you, and it's his job. I mean, he's basically been turned from a chieftain to a foreman, and his job is to get all his people to work for you, and you're granted this land. I mean, that's basically how the Spanish will will divvy up the whole of the new world. And, And by that point, so it's only six years since Columbus's first voyage, but the whole enterprise has worked out completely different from the Portuguese system. So if the Portuguese had done it, They'd have established a few trading posts, and that's it. But the Spanish, because of what you were saying last time, because of the Reconquista, they're used to the idea of conquering land and sort of planting it with people and with farms and mines and all these kinds that's of things. It's a fascinating what-if, isn't it, if the Portuguese had done it? Yeah, because would they have continued working? Would they have worked with existing sort of state entities, as it were? So in other words, with the Incas... Would there still be an Aztec? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Would the Portuguese have have carried on to have used them as collaborators and traded with them, yeah. or would they have been wiped out anyway by disease? I mean, who knows? And European langreed Yeah, and, and over time, would the exactly? Um, and indeed, would Portugal have been strong enough to sustain, defend off, yeah, other with well the French, let's say, or the, the English when they when they got involved um, later on. Anyway. Um, It's the sort of classic thing with Columbus. Some people want to go home. He lets them go home. But with that sort of suicidal side, he says they can take slaves with them, even though he knows Queen Isabella is dead against this. So they take slaves back. And when they get back, the queen is very put out about this. There's loads more feuding um, on Hispaniola. And then in 1500, a guy arrives from Spain called Bobadilla, and he has actually been sent by uh, the, he's the former Chamberlain to the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella. And they said, enough is enough. Go to Hispaniola. Sort, sort it all it out. out. Yeah. yeah. End of story. But Columbus is a shambles. Columbus has been there, ill, mad, miserable, writing endlessly about David and Solomon and all this sort of business. <laughs> Bobadilla turns up, yeah, yeah. Breasts, exactly. <laughs> Bobadilla turns up and actually just rests him. They have a meeting and then Bobadier, um sort of claps him in chains. That's right, hasn't it? Well, you know, yeah. he did it and probably was right to do it. Yeah. Um, uh, puts him on a ship and says. Back to Spain. Um, and that's basically the end of Columbus as a governor, as a, the end of him as a sort of managerial figure. So he's back in Spain by November 1500. He's more and more going in for this kind of religious rhetoric. So he says, he writes to the monarchs, he says, um, Bobadilla sent me here in chains. I swear I do not know, nor can I think why, save what God, our Lord, Wants me to do for your highnesses. I did only what Abraham did for Isaac and Moses for the people of Israel in so Egypt.
2: It's amazing, then, is it not? He's been sent back in chains and he's writing, comparing himself to Abraham and Moses, that there's a yeah. fourth voyage. How does he persuade Ferdinand and Isabella to back him for a fourth voyage? Because we've been talking about how he's a difficult man, he's a prickly man. Yeah. But he clearly has an incredible ability to persuade people who he needs yeah. to persuade to back him you know there is a sense of charisma there
0: as well as definitely there is everything else we've been describing when he's coming out with this they perhaps don't have the same reaction that we do tom so we 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 listen to him saying comparing himself with moses and we say columbus is clearly losing his marbles he's been at sea too long he's blind he's all this stuff i think isabella who is incredibly pious is perhaps quite moved when she hears him describing himself in this way. Plus, they know he is good at discovering things. I mean, he discovered Venezuela. i mean, I say discovered. I mean, it's not like there weren't people there already. Of course, there were, and he had met them. But he's the first European to discover it. So they think they're also, because they're in competition with the Portuguese all this time. So Vasco da Gama has just got back. We talked about Vasco da Gama in our Portuguese episodes last year. Vasco da Gama got back in 1499. And he actually – I mean, this is the thing with Columbus, the amazing thing. Columbus is just a complete failure. He has completely failed to find China. He's failed to find India. The Portuguese who had turned him down were right all along. Their guy has done it, has got back, which is actually very embarrassing for Columbus and for the Spanish yeah. because the yeah. Portuguese are basically saying to them, you know, you've been wittering on for the last <laughs> seven years about – we've actually now found it. Um, yeah. We were right. Yeah. Perhaps because of that competition, the Spanish – authorities think he's not good at administering but he's good at finding things i mean he writes to the pope um alexander borgia he says i I found the garden of eden which is great news (laughs) but also isn't he proposing to um to launch to attack mecca by sailing westwards yeah he's got all this stuff (laughs) all these schemes that crusading stuff that we talked about in episode one it's absolutely still there i mean just because they've conquered granada and they've They've sort of settled down, and they're making a bit of money. It doesn't mean that Ferdinand has given up his ambition to be the last world emperor to take Jerusalem to wipe out Islam to be that that monarch who unites the world behind the banners of Christ and Columbus is sort of saying to him, "You know, I can do that he's also his Genoese network is still giving him funds, so he gets permission from the Pope to go. The Bank of Genoa says say they'll they'll back him again." And so it is that in May 1502, Columbus heads off for voyage number four. This time, it's a much smaller voyage. He's only got four caravels. So 17 with voyage number two. So he's, he's sort of back down to virtually the level that he was with voyage number one. The difference is that this time he's actually banned from visiting Hispaniola. So he gets to Hispaniola. They've got a new governor there called Nicolas de Obando. And Obando says to him, You're not welcome. You know, you're not allowed to land. It's against the law now. And Columbus says, well, there's a massive storm coming. You know, please let me land. And Abando thinks that Columbus is lying, partly because he's about to send a treasure fleet back to Spain and and he thinks Columbus wants to stop him. Actually, Columbus wasn't lying. The treasure fleet is almost all destroyed. Columbus shelters in a bay. His fleet is very battered. And is this the storm in which Bobadier... Gets drowned. Yeah. So, Bombardier is drowned. Um, and also, Roldan, the guy who Columbus yeah. had fallen out with before. So, Columbus is sort of the last man standing <laughs> to some extent. It, yeah. He's, I mean, he, he knows the sea. He's a yeah. very, very good mariner. So, they're blown off to, to Belize. And he then does another of these incredible voyages that actually, if he'd just done this, it would that be would enough be, for a podcast. Yeah. yeah he'd, he'd earn a, po- yeah. a place on the rest of his history. So he sails down the coast of central, along the coast of Central America. He meets people that are probably Maya from Yucatan, Mexico. He drinks pulque, doesn't he? He but drinks pulque. Their their sort of their their sort of beer, I guess it is. It's he compares kind of, it to um to English beer. Oh, the, there's no higher praise. Tom. <laughs> no, <That's laughs> wonderful, good for him. Uh, well, he would have known that because, of course, he'd been to Bristol, hadn't he? Yeah, and Ireland and sort of hanging around there. So. He would have... Hanging out in Clifton. Exactly, exactly. And the Maya are clearly more sophisticated. They have very fancy swords out of wood and they have dyed cotton clothes. He thinks, well, this clearly means I'm in Southeast Asia. I'm so near the River Ganges. Yeah, so he thinks he's (laughs) only 10 days (laughs) sail from the river. And this is so interesting because it's a point to which everybody else, absolutely everybody else thinks this is the new world. I mean, that's now become a cliche. We're only a few years away from it being renamed after Amerigo Vespucci, which is harsh, isn't it? It is harsh. Well, Vespucci himself is actually quite an impressive explorer. But it is, yes, I suppose it is harsh. But it's partly Columbus's own fault because he just refuses to accept that it even exists. He keeps saying, how can you name it after somebody who doesn't even acknowledge? (laughs) (laughs) Believe it. So he goes all the way down to Panama. And he says, at that point, he says he's in Malaysia, the Strait of Malacca. People say to him, "There's an isthmus, and if you go across it, there will be another ocean." And he says, "Oh well, this is definitely Malaysia. You know, I know exactly where I am." <laughs> and um, so he's still trying to fit everything into his his sort of mad theories. <laughs> but it's Panama. It is Panama. Yeah. So he, I mean, it's amazing he doesn't die actually, because a lot, of, as I said, a lot of people who visit you know places like tropical places like Panama, they come to very sticky ends. But Columbus doesn't. They're absolutely shattered. Their ships are riddled with termites. One of the historians says Columbus by this stage was spending long periods in the crow's nest talking to God, which I think is <laughs> probably not ideal for the captain of your ship. Yeah, they are well, blown- he, had, he had a policy, didn't he, of of uh, whenever he was too depressed that he'd go out
2: in a ship, out into the the ocean depths and yeah. commune with God. Yeah. I
0: mean, I suppose it's easy for well, us it's to... A kind, yeah, it's a kind of Franciscan retreat. It is, but also worked for him. He did four amazing voyages yeah. and returns to tell the tale and neither of us tom has done neither of us have done that no. so much as one so no. good for columbus and then actually one of the craziest elements of all the columbus story they are blown by a massive storm mm-hmm. as they're sailing back to hispaniola and end up being marooned on the north coast of jamaica and they basically the ships are in such a terrible condition they have to turn them into sort of shelters on the beach, they divide up the rations and they say, well, what, what are we going to do? And two of Columbus's men, uh, a guy called Diego Mendez and Bartolomeo Fieschi, who's Genoese, they say, well, we'll <laughs> we'll go by canoe to go and get help. And they do. That's amazing, isn't it? They cover. All days a, is it? Yeah, 120 miles of sea. They have, I think, about six Tainos with them. Intense heat. They're incredibly thirsty. One of the natives dies of thirst. Uh, they find a rock in the middle of the, the ocean where they are able to get some rainwater and eat some mollusks. <laughs> and then, yeah. but even after they've got to Hispaniola, they're the western bit, and they've got to then go another 300 miles over land to go and get help. And the incredible thing is, <laughs> when they get to, they finally get to the governor of Hispaniola and say, Columbus is shipwrecked on Jamaica. Please send help. He says, no. (laughs) He says, I hate Columbus. They call him the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh. Leave the Pharaoh alone. Yeah. Yeah. The Pharaoh is a terrible man. I'm not sending help for him. So then there's a long delay while um, Columbus is waiting for help. Unsurprisingly, there's a a rebellion that breaks out among Columbus's crew. I mean, it's extraordinary indictment of his managerial style that even when they're shipwrecked living in the – the sort of the shattered wreck of their ship on the beach. They still all fall out with each other. Two of them lead a rebellion. They sail off uh, along the coast of Jamaica with some overloaded boats, some makeshift boats with some Tainos. They get, they're massively, because they're overloaded, they throw all the Tainos overboard, which I think we can both agree is very bad behavior. Yeah. They then have to make their way back on land killing and robbing and sort of raping as they go. Then they pitch up back at Columbus's camp and say, Well, we did rebel, but that didn't work out. So let's we'll make come. up. Yeah, let's make up. So they're there. Columbus is sort of half mad. He's just whittering on about Solomon and the Garden of Eden <laughs> and the river Ganges. And finally in June fifteen oh four, Nicolas de Bando says, Fine, all right, you know, I'll send my arm. I'll send help. And um, they send help. Columbus is rescued and basically sent back to Spain. And when he gets back to Spain, so that's November 1504, he has a bit of bad news. Queen Isabella is on her deathbed. And she's his particular patron. Yeah, she dies on the 26th of November 1504, the mother of Catherine of Aragon. And when she dies, that's kind of it, curtains for him, really. I mean, I think by that point, he's he's pretty ill and he's half blind, and his wits are so scrambled um by all this stuff about the Garden of Eden, pears, you know <laughs> shipwrecks, storms, everybody calling him the pharaoh yeah. um and that's I sort do, of w- wouldn't do wonders for your health, would you being yeah, but you pharaoh. also w- would you sign- after hearing the stories of those four voyages, Tom, would you sign up for a voyage number five with Columbus? No, I wouldn't no, nor would I not afraid to say it. Well, you wouldn't get the chance because he sort of just drifts around, trudging around after King Ferdinand, vaguely trying to get permission for new voyages. But also he's so obsessed with his titles, just trying endlessly to get confirmation of his own titles. And then in May 1506... Which he gets, doesn't he? Yeah, he does.
2: He does. He absolutely does. So he's, he's always complaining that Ferdinand is, you know, letting him down. But actually,
0: Ferdinand's quite good. Do you know, the King and Queen, I don't think they treated him badly. I think they they paid him a pension before they even gave him the permission to go on voyage number one. And even after the sort of shambolic behavior, they never break with him. Well, Ferdinand fixes for Diego, Columbus's son,
2: to marry the niece of the Duke of Alba. Yeah. So actually, Columbus gets everything he wants because Columbus, this son of a weaver
0: who's risen from nothing ends up the progenitor of a line of dukes. I mean, that's absolutely right. The um, the title that he has, which is um, Admiral of the Ocean Sea, uh, I think that's inherited to this day by his descendants. So I, I think there's a man who is... So there is that, isn't there? Yeah. So he
2: dies on um, 20th of May, 1506 in Vladimir. Yeah. There's obviously a kind of cloud hanging over him, a feeling of re- of regret that he hasn't nailed down the fact that he's reached... Asia, yeah, but he must have been able to die feeling that he had achieved great things, and it would be interesting to know what, what he was more pleased about. The fact that he had made all these extraordinary crossings or the fact that after
0: his death, he would prove to be the progenitor of a line of dukes. That's a good question. Yeah, because it was always about... I suspect the latter. So much of it was <laughs> about status <laughs> for him. Yeah, so much of it. So getting his son, getting those titles confirmed for his son. Anyway, should we, shall we take a break now? That's... And when we come back, let's look at the, um, well, the extraordinary story of what
2: happens to his body. Oh, yes. And the way in which he has been remembered over the course of the centuries and particularly in in more recent years in the debate over his legacy so um we'll do that when we come back we'll see you in a few minutes
0: this episode is brought to you by amazon prime
2: Children's biographies of Christopher Columbus function as primers on racism and imperialism. These books teach youngsters to accept the right of white people to rule over people of color, of powerful nations to dominate weaker nations. That is um, William Bigelow, who is a US high school teacher and the author of Rethinking Columbus. And Dominic, compared to the poem with which we opened this episode that is indeed a rethinking so that is a rethinking yeah the the poem i think was written in the 70s um and that gives you some sense of the revolution
0: in opinion that has happened over the past few decades it is because i think that quote from mr bigelow i think that's actually from the 1990s or so oh is it oh right okay so that that would be in the
2: context perhaps of the um the the anniversary in 1992 exactly before we come to that Let's just look at the immediate aftermath of what happens uh, in in the wake of his death. So we, we talked about how Ferdinand looks after Diego and yes. Columbus's kind of legacy, the legacy of his family. And actually, I mean, Diego ends up the governor of the Indies, doesn't he? He does.
0: He, yeah. he kind of, he goes out to Santo Domingo. And he's there until the early 1520s, I think. So he's there while Mexico is being conquered. I mean, he's a big man. And the Spanish crown absolutely do honour those promises to, um, to Columbus. And while he's out there,
2: Columbus has been – he died in Valladolid. He gets buried there um, in the Franciscan monastery. Then he gets moved to Seville, his body. Yeah. And then because Diego is out in um, Hispaniola, he has him brought out to Santo Domingo and buried there, where he stays for as long as um, Hispaniola remains Spanish. But when Santo Domingo becomes French – which it does at the end of the 18th century, Columbus's body is moved to Havana in Cuba. yeah, And then the Cubans rebel against the Spanish and become independent. And so Columbus's body is taken back to Seville, where it's buried in a rather kind of overblown monument. Yeah, a ginormous monument in the cathedral. Um, and is there to this day. And so there is, there is, um, there is skepticism as to whether these, <laughs> the body that is said to be Columbus's after all this transfer is
0: actually Columbus's. That's right, because I think it's still there are still competing claims, aren't there, between the Dominican Republic and Spain, and whether in fact Columbus's body might have been div- dismembered and different bits of him are perhaps in different places. And I think there has been talk of DNA testing, though it all seems completely fruitless to me. I think everybody should claim, you know, a little, a little bit, bit of, of a, a little bit of Columbus. But if you want
2: a metaphor, this idea of Columbus's posthumous remains kind of end, endlessly being moved from place to place and being torn to pieces by competing interests is
0: its a very good metaphor, isn't it? For- it is. For Although the funny thing is that Columbus at first, so in the 16th century, partly because I suppose he wasn't Spanish, the Spanish don't make a huge deal of Columbus. In fact, lots of people obviously are still alive who hated Columbus. They thought of him as the pharaoh. So Columbus is not really fated as a great hero. You know, there aren't cities named after him. But he, he, he does, I mean, he is established as the discovery. He's the discoverer, but the New World is not named after him. It's named after Vespucci, who sailed along the coast of Brazil. The two figures who sort of dominate the sort of Spanish accounts of the sort of conquest of the New World are Cortes and Pizarro. So they're the conquerors of the Aztecs and the Incas. Because they really do bring back gold. Because they do bring back gold and also because they're you know, there's there's something more obviously sort of I mean, as 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 violent as they were, there's something more obviously swashbuckling about those stories about them fighting their way in and out of capital cities and things mm-hmm. that seem to fit with the sort of martial mindset of the Spanish Empire better than this sort of very disputatious Genoese Marinos wrong going on about breasts. Yeah. And- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And actually, the interesting thing with Columbus, I think, is that a lot of the debate about Columbus hero or villain comes from the United States, which is actually, of course, a part of the world that Columbus never visited. Although so he might talk, have done, had he stayed on his course on the first voyage, he might have yeah, crashed he, into Florida. Florida, But he didn't. So he's ne- he never went to the United States. He didn't discover it. He didn't colonize it. But what was once the Ormideira, I say the sacralization of, of Columbus, the mythologization of Columbus, started in America. In the 19, 18th, 19th centuries. So, obviously, if you think about the use of Columbia, the District of Columbia, Columbus, Ohio, um, you get a bit Columbia of that. University. La- the Columbia University. You get a bit of that in Latin America, obviously, the country, Colombia, Gran Colombia, which was uh, Simon Bolivar's dream of a kind of United States of Latin America. But that's obviously the period in particularly the New- North America Manifest Destiny. And Columbus is seen as the progenitor of Manifest Destiny. So, um, go west, young man, all of that stuff. So, Martin Van Buren, US president in the 1830s, um, commissioned a discovery of America statue with Columbus and a kind of cringing Indian maiden, which stood outside. as uh, well, she might have cringed, yeah. Well, exactly, you're quite right, Tom. Uh, it stood outside the Capitol until it was removed in, um, the mid of the 20th century. And why was it moved? Because it was felt to be, even then, to be... I think because even then, yeah, in the mid-20th century, it was just incredibly insensitive, yeah. The image of Columbus is this sort of square-jawed, blue-eyed European, this sort of model of, of heroic European exploration. That comes late 19th century, and it's largely a product of immigration to the U.S., and there are things like there's a group called the Knights of Columbus who are set up from the 1880s onwards, and they are Catholic Italian immigrants largely who need an American hero. So we began
2: with the Sopranos episode.
0: Yeah, they're the Sopranos,
2: written by uh, Mike Imperioli, who plays Christopher yeah. in the Sopranos. And in that, the whole—I mean, the whole plot of the episode revolves around the idea that these members of the of the mafia in New Jersey are obsessed with a sense of uh, Italian-American
0: pride and that Columbus is the, is the focus for this. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, I, and actually, that episode is hated by lots of Sopranos fans. But, I mean, the, the woke of the Sopranos fan, the more they dislike that episode, I think it's fair to say. But those groups, Italian-American groups were lobbying because what they wanted was a founding father who was like them, who was Catholic and Italian. <laughs> and involved in all kinds of... <laughs>
2: bad behavior <laughs> under bad behavior i mean that's, <laughs> that's i mean that is the that's the irony that's being played on in the sopranos episode isn't it i suppose it it's, is yeah. it's that the mafia are not good for the reputation of italian americans and the sopranos isn't good for the reputation of Italian Americans,
0: <laughs> right. so there's a lot of you know, a Hall of Mirrors there. There is, yes. Um, but they sort of, so what they do is they reinvent Columbus as this heroic, square-jawed, in, heroic individualist who is the sort of herald of manifest destiny, and and in other words, and of science gives, and of science and of and but and yeah. a forward-thinking modern figure who gives them a hero that will rank alongside Washington, Jefferson, and Co. Who are obviously all Protestants and anglo-saxon protestants um and so they are they are pushing for a national holiday so columbus day from the 1880s or so so it's actually it wasn't made a federal holiday until 1971 lyndon johnson had had passed the legislation um or signed it off a couple of years earlier and that's a point at which there's a kind of ethnicization of america Anyway, you know, Italian Americans are. It's the era of the Godfather, of the Deer Hunter, of all these kinds. But also of films. Marlon Brando turning down his Oscar. Oh yes, yeah, and a Native American turning up who I now gather isn't a Native American. That's right, Sachin Little Feather. Yes, is the uh, is the name. Um, yeah, and actually, Columbus Day, interestingly, has never been universally accepted. So there are quite a lot of states where they were always very ambivalent about it. Places like New Mexico and so on. Um, and right now, if you, there are, there are some cities, some states in the United States where they insist on, they do not mark Columbus Day, or they they declare it to be Indigenous Peoples Day instead. And that's not just. It'd be very tempting for us to say, "Oh, woke Americans," but actually, that's mirrored across Latin America. So from a from about. The nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, and this will ring a bell for people who listen to our World Cup podcasts about places like Argentina or Uruguay or you know Mexico. Or Mexico, yeah. There was a trend to have a Día de la Raza, the Day of the Race, and on the twelfth of October, on on Columbus Day. But in a lot of the countries, Argentina, Peru, Colombia, Costa Rica, old friends in Costa Rica, some yeah. um, they have renamed it. Things like Diversity Day, Indigenous Peoples Day, Cultural Encounters Day all of these kinds of things. So in other words, it's not just a North American phenomenon to tilt against Columbus. Lots of people in Latin America are doing it too. And this is something that we've been talking about before, that the tradition of seeing what Columbus is
2: doing in the New World, the raping, the enslavement as crimes, yeah is a tradition that is imported by the Spanish. We don't know what the Tainos thought. I mean, presumably, they weren't in favor of it at all. But since they didn't, they left no writings about it we don't know what they thought so that tradition of seeing what columbus did is inherited from spanish writers who were criticizing him yeah and it has always been there i mean it's particularly strong in protestant narratives for obvious reasons it becomes conflated with catholic oppression but it's always been there and in preparation for this i listened to a very very old episode of letter from america by alistair cook who was oh, a yeah. kind of a bbc British journalist who kind of explained America to BBC listeners, and he was talking about the celebrations, so the 500th anniversary celebrations in 1992. So there was a huge World Expo in Seville, specific, you know, the burial place of, of yeah. supposedly of Columbus, and it was also, and, and the theme of the um, of the Expo was, I think, the Age of Exploration. So it couldn't have been more clearly identified with Columbus. But when the Spanish king, Juan Carlos, before he disgraced himself and had to, re- had to abdicate, um, he, he, he gives a kind of speech of welcome and it, he never once mentions Christopher Columbus. Yeah. And Alistair Cook is kind of wondering about this and he relates it to the sense of embarrassment in America, in the United States, where there had been lots of plans being made to celebrate the anniversary, places with any kind of link to Columbus, you know, Columbia University. District of Columbia, all those kind of places, and saying, well, actually, they've been overtaken by a deep sense of embarrassment. And he says, I don't know where this has come from. He's describing it. And he says, words to the effect, what no one has been able to e- explain is why this has suddenly happened, the sense of embarrassment about Columbus. But actually, it's very clear why it's yeah. happened and where it's come from. Is It's a
0: continuous tradition, reaching back centuries and centuries. Well, you mentioned uh, Las Casas, the priest who was active. He was a kind of a conquistador himself. He was active in Cuba, wasn't he, in the yeah. early 1500s, 1510s. And then he witnesses massacres and he kind of, it's like the scales fall from his eyes and he becomes the great protector of the Indians. I think he was given that title, wasn't he? Protector mm-hmm. of the Indians. And he, I mean, you, you were saying it's taken up by Protestants, but it's actually Catholic writers absolutely who first create this yes. idea that the conquest of the new world, that Columbus, the voyages, all of that sort of business was rotten from the very beginning with, with rape and and violence. And, and some historians now would go along with what they say. Some would, some think Las Casas was exaggerating. One of the arguments that people have is about genocide. I personally do not think it makes any sense to accuse Columbus of genocide because it's absolutely not what he wanted. He wanted the locals. No, we, we, we've, kind of made that clear from the beginning. I mean, there's, you could argue that one of the repercussions and unanticipated consequences, I suppose you would say, of his arrival is genocide, and that pretty much all the indigenous people of the Caribbean Die, but a disease plays a large part in that, and I think it's very harsh to blame the Spanish. You would no more blame the Spanish well, for, for well, bringing smallpox be- than you would blame somebody for giving you, for giving you COVID. I would say, but I think you could you could absolutely legitimately argue
2: that their ability to withstand disease that they're a broken people because yeah. their entire way of life has been destroyed and they're having to adjust to new ways of living, which are basically involves them having to work in mines. I think that's a, absolutely right, Tom. Yeah, and I think that. You know, when your entire way of understanding the world has been shattered and we and we talked about this in the episode we did on the Aztecs as well, that the impact of disease is greater when you feel kind of emotionally, maybe spiritually broken. Yeah. And again, you know, we we don't know because as we say, we you know, we have no record it's 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 hard to imagine how how utterly dislocating and
0: devastating what happens to them in the space of what, a few decades? Not even a few decades, I mean ten, fifteen years, maybe, yeah, from start to finish. Las Casas and other people actually write about exactly what you say. They say when the smallpox comes, when they're they're starving, and so on, they say it was horrible to watch you know people just sat there waiting to die or, or killed themselves. They, they, it's as though they had been their world had just been completely turned upside down, and all their assumptions destroyed, their children taken away. You know, family's broken up, all of this business, and they just feel they've nothing to live for. And I think you can absolutely see that people would have thought like that, that the men with beards have, and swords have turned up and destroyed everything that they took for granted. And one of the reasons why this perspective on Columbus accelerates,
2: becomes more pronounced in the 70s, in the 80s, into the 90s, I think is partly because it's focused by the anniversary, but also the perspective that is offered by the civil rights movement in America. Yeah which has black Americans as as its focus. But of course, it, it, it spills outwards because the idea that specifically white Europeans have done to portions of the world what followed in the wake of Columbus's discovery is it's there in the campaign against apartheid in South Africa. It's there in Australian and New Zealand's kind of sense of guilt about what's happened to the indigenous peoples there mm-hmm. and there's this feeling that that what happens with columbus is expressive of a trend that has lasted centuries and is
0: kind of enduring into the 21st century but the counter argument to that is that columbus is getting grief for a lot of things that he pers- you know for things that happened long after he was dead so a good example of this is well the trend now generally is to see columbus as a as a villain and a good ex- early example of that is from Howard Zinn, his People's History of the United States. You know, overtly Marxist history, very successful, though. Um, you know, very popular among students and so on. He says absolutely explicitly, Columbus's legacy was, and I quote, conquest, slavery, death. And if you look at any, if you if you Google Columbus, and that sort of American um, news website or something, so I got a quote from Fox, 2015. Christopher Columbus, in whose name children are off school and mail is not delivered today, was a homicidal tyrant who initiated the two greatest crimes in the history of the Western Hemisphere the Atlantic slave trade and the American Indian genocide. And I think actually both of those statements are wrong. To say that Columbus initiated the Atlantic slave trade, to me, is to miss the fact that people in the Atlantic were already trading slaves. And it's from that milieu that Columbus comes. So the Portuguese, for example, were already shipping slaves from West Africa back to Lisbon, to Seville, to their, to their islands in the Atlantic, decades before Columbus. But the fact he didn't begin it, the fact he didn't begin it doesn't alter the fact that he was complicit but that's but I'm not disputing that Tom. I'm not no. saying that he wasn't that he wasn't involved in it. But in a sense to to say well he's not the founder of it though. No, he's not. He's not.
2: But what happened in the Canary Islands, I mean that is a kind of genocidal program that had
0: begun in the early 15th century. Not deliberately genocidal though. What the Spanish want is a workforce and if people resist they kill them. Now, the effect is genocidal. We 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 would look at that and we would say this is terrible, but it's not a deliberate project. Let's wipe all these people out.
2: But I think that um, what, what has darkened Columbus's reputation is the fact that the criticisms that were made of him in his own lifetime for what he was doing to the yeah. Indians, it was yeah. seen as being you know, a terrible thing. And that involved both the sense that they were, they were being wiped out in enormous numbers – yeah, you know Peter Martyr says this. It's not just Las Casas. Peter Martyr was saying two hundred thousand die in that war that he and his brother launched on Hispaniola, yeah. and also that they are, you know, they keep sending back slaves to Isabella, and she gets more and more cross about it. That in a sense he is on the wrong side of a debate in Spain that has carried into the present. Yeah, that's why there's a kind of a, 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 a darkness to his his name and his reputation now. Against that, it would be. Remiss to deny that he is an astonishing figure of epical historical significance and that he's a man of extraordinary courage, extraordinary charisma and extraordinary ability. And the, the scale of what he achieved is utterly momentous for good or ill. Yeah. Even on his second voyage, he's worked out the quickest way to get across the Atlantic. He's, he's cracked the wind scheme. He's cracked the fact that, um, you know, you can get across there if you have the wind in your sails. You don't need to worry about it. He's discovered, you know, the difference between true north and magnetic north. He's discovered, he's worked out the fact that the globe isn't a perfect sphere. He's negotiated the incredibly complicated seas of the Caribbean. He's begun to fathom that South America is a continent. I mean, any of these, yeah. any of those achievements would, would... And all of them together.
0: Extraordinary. All of them together. Yeah, you know, he is an astonishing figure. While, you know, not doing them, he's not doing this behind a desk. He's doing it in the middle of a storm, leading men. Yeah, I I agree with you. And actually, I agree with what you said before that. I mean, Columbus, it's one of those things that if he he were in a courtroom, I mean, I don't ever think history should be conducted as a sort of courtroom trial. I don't think – I never like the spectacle of historians sort of sitting in judgment and moral judgment on people in the past. But imagine that Columbus were in a courtroom and you played back. You know, you had hidden cameras and you played back scenes of his behavior on Hispaniola or on Cuba or on Jamaica. I mean, they would be scenes that would have most people averting their eyes in horror, and probably that he would not himself watch with – he'd be embarrassed to have them played back, the the pillage, the enslaving, all of that kind of thing. So I definitely don't think there's any way in which you can say Columbus was a, a saintly man, a man of tremendous virtue. And as you say, the very fact that people at the time – are shocked by some of the behavior is the the real indictment. Because it doesn't matter what we think, but it matters what Las Casas and what other people at the time, the friars, some of the, you know, what Queen Isabella, some of these people thought that they thought he was behaving badly. I suppose what you would say is that this isn't just, I mean, Columbus is not a violent man before he sails across the Atlantic. So in other words, there's not some deeply buried homicidal impulse in Columbus. He's behaving as he does. He's a desperate man. He's a desperate man. And he's also coming out of a context in which there are already thousands upon thousands of slaves in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic, in which he has been at the court of the Spanish monarchs during a war, a war that they see as a holy war against the Moors in Granada. He comes out of a very martial, aggressive culture in which the Genoese play a part of of entrepreneurs and fixers for predatory competitive powers, in which the Ottoman Empire is, is one of the most notable. And I think if you miss that, if you just say, well, Columbus is a villain, end of story, he's greedy and he's violent. If you miss the context, then you miss what makes him tick. And I think all the time he's justifying this to himself, isn't he? I mean, he's always, when he's enslaving people, when he's sending them back, when he's behaving badly, he's agonizing about it and he's writing these letters and he's talking to God about it and he Uh, really thinks he's doing the right thing. And he's always framing it in very overtly, theologically, biblically infused terms.
2: And I've said it before, I'll say it again. I think one of the, um, the recent intellectual trends in the study of history is that for lots of people who no longer count themselves as Christian, maybe not even familiar with the most basic elements of, of scripture. History has come to serve what scripture used to provide. It provides stories and narratives that enable people to, to understand what is good and evil. And the story of Columbus is a kind of paradigmatic example of that. And the paradox is, is that when people arraign Columbus as a satanic figure whose evil has spilled into the present they're kind of doing what columbus did which is to interpret the world and world events and the interplay of great men with geography in theological terms in overtly moral terms and whether that's a good or bad thing is perhaps a subject for another podcast but it, but but the moralizing of columbus is something that columbus himself that again is something that columbus
0: brought to the new world it's yeah, part of the colombian exchange it's true and it's, it's an irony isn't it that so much of this debate is driven by the united states by a country that columbus didn't settle
2: and so the well i was just going to maybe end this episode by saying a book recommendation which isn't a work of history but a novel and not written by a european or by a novelist from the united states but a mexican carlos fuentes oh yeah you've have you read terra
0: nostra no i've read i've read uh, the death of artemio cruz and, or uh, Timmy Cruz it would be, rather. And um, The Old Gringo. Isn't he right? The Old Gringo? Yeah, he did.
2: But Terra Nostra is both his masterpiece and by far his most difficult book. So he was inspired to write it by Finnegan's Wake.
0: Oh, my word. Got- <laughs> That's ominous. <laughs> very
2: but, it, but it's actually much more re- – well, it's infinitely more readable than, uh, than Finnegan's Wake. But it's a very great counterfactual story in which Felipe Dos Philip II – America still hasn't been discovered in his reign. He's married to Isabel Tudor. So, Elizabeth, oh, Elizabeth right. first. Yeah. So, you know, they've, they've married and the discovery of America is made in his reign and all kinds of kind of weird stuff is going on. So, you've got Don Quixote and all kinds of things. And, um, but it's, it's a brilliant book on that kind of transcends the, the terms of the debate that we've been talking about. You know, is it good or evil? You know, is he a, a hero or a villain? It's about, the kind of overwhelming strangeness of the whole business and it brings it brilliantly alive and it's really worth the effort of, you know, it it is a quite a challenging novel, but it's really, I think worth reading and it kind of sits in the back of my mind Right. as something that provides a kind of framing context for this whole story. So the story of Columbus, the story of Cortez, the, the Aztecs are a kind of key part of
0: the, of the narrative. And, and I, I highly recommend that. Oh, I, well, I like the sound of that, time. I'm going to check that out. Because we will be returning to this sort of territory in the autumn because we're planning a little series about the conquest of Mexico. So to some extent, that's what happens next. And again, that's a very dark and bloody story, much contested by historians and probably much more complicated than we often imagine. But um, so I suppose we haven't really answered the question, have we, Columbus hero or villain? And I think one reason we haven't answered is because ultimately it's a pretty sterile question because there aren't really such things as heroes and villains in history, at least I don't think so. Well, it, it, it's, it's a question for theologians. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, Columbus was a very profoundly human, complicated, difficult person. Uh, I think it's fair to say some admirable qualities and some definitely less admirable ones and a- less admirable behaviour. A man who achieved remarkable things for good and for bad. Perfect. A nicely evasive summation to end <laughs> uh, this, this, our own four voyages through the life and times of uh, Christopher Columbus. So all that remains is to say farewell to my shipmate and uh, we will see you for our next voyage next week. Bye-bye. Adios.